Good morning again, friends. It is good to be here again. Um, I am part of Jacob's Well downtown uh, east side, and um, this week coming up, so Monday through to Sunday, actually, we're going to be running a 24-7 prayer week at Jacob's Well. And anybody is welcome to come down and, and join us if you want for an hour or two to come and pray. Um, people take it one hour at a time, and there might be a couple people in the room or many people in the room or just one person in the room. But if you go to jacobswell.ca and click on prayer, you can see the calendar. If you want to come and join us in prayer, you can also do this uh, where you are. You can do this at this church. You can do it in lots of places. You can pray everywhere. I was praying on my way here today um, in the car because traffic is the most tempting place for me to get very angry. And so I, and Sunday morning's not too bad, although there's lots of construction happening, but uh, I, I do like to pray when I drive. I do open my eyes, so have no fear, um, but, uh, but I do like doing that. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. Um, it, who here likes to cook? Anybody here likes to cook? We've got one person in the back, a few people, yeah, okay. Anybody here like to eat? A few eaters, yeah, in the room? I can, I can tell. Uh, so, uh, no, it's, uh, I'm, look, trust me. Um, the, who, when you go to cook, does anybody go to those uh, online recipe pages? Anybody do that? Yeah? You know, you used to have books, the recipe books. And in the recipe book, what you would get is the recipe, right? Which is what you're looking for. Uh, when you go to online recipe pages, what you get is a 10-page story about how my grandmother came from Sicily and, you know, all this kind of, and you're like, I just want to know how many onions I put in this and how high to put the temperature on the stove. But you have to go through this whole story to get it. And it's actually not a bad thing uh, because um, eating is not just about eating. Cooking is not just about food. There's this beautiful book called The Supper of the Lamb by uh, Robert Ca uh, Farrar Capon. I recommend it. I, I sometimes just throw books out, but I do really recommend this one. It's called The Supper of the Lamb. He was a priest, and he was a phenomenal chef. And so he writes this book about how it's a, it's a recipe book, but it's also a book of theology, which is really fascinating. And he gives you a lot of different recipes, but first he says, now here's how to cut an onion. Uh, to do this properly, you're going to need about an hour. And you're like, what are you talking about? He's like, not every time you cut the onion, but the first time you cut an onion, you should, it should take you about an hour because you need to peel off the outside first and just take a, put it in your hand and feel what this is and then take off the next little membrane and on the inside you'll notice some water and you are the first person, you and God are the first person to see on the inside of this onion. And it's just this beautiful book of theology. And then he says, now here's how to cook a Passover feast, how, how to cook the lamb. And, and I, so I think there's something appropriate in there. And I actually think as I started to consider this passage, and I've thought about this before, um, and consider the Bible, really it could be described as a bit of a, uh, uh, like a modern-day cooking website. Because the Bible tells all these stories. But at the heart of all these stories, there's essentially uh, stuff about eating. The Bible is about eating and drinking, Really. You, you could be uh, excused for thinking that the Bible is basically a cookbook. And it really, really is. When you start to think about it, how many times throughout Scripture do you see stories of people cooking, eating, drinking together? Right from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Now, this wasn't a very good meal. I mean, maybe it tasted great, but it wasn't a good meal. But this is where things go wrong is in, in, a, in a meal, in, a, in food that they eat. When God then uh, speaks to Abram and gives him the promise, he says, I want you to take a bunch of animals and cut them in half. And, and this is what ends up being like sacrifice. And then what comes through the middle is a boiling pot. 
right? Like a cooking pot comes to the middle. You can read about that in, in Genesis 15. Um, Jacob and Esau, you know the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament in Genesis? There's two really important moments, and they both surround food. Jacob cooks this delicious stew, and his brother Esau is out hunting, and then he comes back, and he's like, I am starving. I want to eat that stew. And Jacob's like, well, if you give me your blessing, or if you give me your firstborn inheritance rights. And Esau's like, yeah, that stew looks amazing. And he he's, trades his rights for this for this stew. And then at the end of their father's life, uh, they, they trick their father with really delicious food. Like there's so much about food in Scripture. Um, the Passover. The Passover is a meal. God says, cook this meal, and this is how you are to cook it. And then if you cook this correctly, um, you know, you are my people, and I'm going to bring you, I'm going to liberate you out of slavery in Egypt. It's all about this meal. And almost all the sacrifices in the tabernacle, uh, they all involve food. And the highest form of communal worship in Israel's life is a giant meal. That is amazing. We should, you know, we sometimes have potlucks after church, but it's like an extra to church. I wonder if that should actually just be church as we come together and have a huge blowout meal every week. Are you with me? Alex? You hearing the people? Yeah? This is what they want. Give the people what they want. A huge meal every week. That's how they worshiped. That's how Israel worshiped was they would eat the food that they were sacrificing. Uh, the highest form, that's the highest form of kingdom. Leviticus has lots of uh, rules about what they can eat and what they can't eat. Jesus' first miracle in the book of John, does anybody know what it is, his first sign? Water into wine at this wedding. I mean, and not just wine, like the best wine. I, don't, I actually don't know what your church's policy is around drinking or anything like that, so I'm not worried about that. But, but Jesus, like, he, it, I went to university, and if we had a guy who could turn water into wine, that guy would be popular, <laughs> like really popular. But it wasn't, it wasn't like the bad stuff. It was the best stuff that he makes at the wedding of Cana. And then, you know, we have two stories, not just one story. We know the feeding of the 5,000, but also the feeding of the 4,000. Like, Jesus feeds people all the time. And he says, I am the bread of life. And he says, I am the true vine. And Jesus tells his disciples when he sends them out on mission, he says, eat whatever is in front of you, which sounds awesome. That's great mission instructions. Eat whatever is put in front of you. A after his resurrection, we're told that he comes and he eats broiled fish with his disciples. Which one theologian said, look, that's what convinced me. That's what convinced me to follow Jesus. We're like, what? He's like, a ghost. People say, oh, maybe Jesus was a spirit or whatever. Like, a ghost doesn't eat broiled fish. You know, it's got to be a human. A human with a body eats broiled fish. Peter's vision in the book of Acts. He's up on the roof and he's praying, and then he, he has a vision. And the vision is like this, this uh, almost carpet filled with animals. And the voice of the Lord says, kill and eat. And Peter goes, well, I'm not allowed to eat that stuff. That was some of the stuff in Leviticus that we're not allowed to eat. He says, don't call unclean that which I've made clean. Eat this food, which again is the greatest vision that's ever been. <laughs> eat this food. And Paul Paul talks a lot about eating. He tells the church in Corinth that they're not eating the Lord's Supper correctly. 
It's not that they got the, the ingredients wrong. It's that they weren't treating each other right. They weren't eating that food correctly. And so they were actually, um, uh, they were offending against the poor and against the church and against the body of Christ. And constantly, Paul was going around and, and forming communities that were sort of based around eating. And it was radical. It was revolutionary because they said, you people who now are following Jesus, you Jewish followers of Jesus, and you Gentile followers, you Greek followers, you Roman followers, you, you, you Samaritan followers of Jesus, gather around at the table and eat together. And this was not done. And then Paul would go somewhere else, and then people would follow Paul. This must have been so annoying. They were like trolls, but they didn't have the internet. And uh, they would follow around afterwards, and they would say, no, 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 Paul was wrong. You're not supposed to eat together. You know, you Jewish uh, Christians can eat over here, and you Gentile Christians can eat over here. And at one point in the, the, the city of Antioch, where Paul is still there, and the Jewish uh, believers and the Gentile believers are together, and they're eating, and, and a group come, and Peter's there with them, and they, uh, they, the, the Jewish believers start then all eating in their own table, because they say, we can't risk eating unclean food. And Paul rebukes Peter to his face in public and says, you are offending against the gospel. We are supposed to eat together. The Bible is about eating. It's right at the heart of the gospel somehow. And part of it is because eating together is a really intimate thing to do. It's extremely intimate to eat together. Um, still today in the Middle East especially, being invited to, into someone's home to eat a meal is a huge deal. Um, it is the, I don't know if you know, but it's the season of Ramadan right now for our Muslim brothers and sisters. And we have a, a lady in our community, she's, she's come, she was uh, displaced from Syria, and she's come uh, now, she's been about six years in Canada, and uh, she's, she's part of our group at Jacob's Well, and, and she's, she and her daughter are Muslim. And so she, last year, she invited a few of us over for, a, for breakfast, and we didn't understand what that was, but it was breaking fast, so it happens at about 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and we came over to eat, and we had already eaten dinner, which was a rookie mistake. Because we came in, and there was this, and we, like, we actually looked at each other like, we're in trouble here, because there is so much food. <laughs> like, there is so much. And we know that she's made all this food for us big guys to eat all this food. I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Like, this is, this is trouble. So she's invited us again this year, and I'm like, ah, I'm not going to eat before. I know how this goes. Um, but we're going to go over, and, and one of the reasons she invites us over is because she calls me brother. And that isn't just, oh, you know how in church you sort of forget someone's name when you call them brother or sister? You know how you do that? You know how I do that all the time? Um, she's not doing that. She knows my name. She calls me brother because she says we are family. And because her family is back in Syria, she has been separated from them, and that is heartbreaking for her. And so when I call her sister, she just glows because she's like, we are family and we eat together. This is an intimate thing that we do together, and it's very different from our wa modern Western uh, fast food and order-in Uber Eats culture, isn't it? It's very, very different. So there's actually three important meals, though, that I went through kind of scriptural meals that I missed out, and I missed out on them on purpose. And I want to talk about that. The first is from Deuteronomy. I'm not going to read it out because it's a long passage, but it's a really interesting passage. It's when Israel has reached the mountain. Uh, this is, they've been liberated from Egypt. They've walked through the Red Sea. They're in the desert, and they go, and they, they hit this mountain. And this is where God is, and he's about to give them the law. 
But first he says, Moses, I want you to come on up the mountain. And I want you to bring Aaron, and I want you to bring 70 of the Israelite elders. And they weren't particularly thrilled to do this. They didn't want to go up the mountain. And there's no blaming them, because all they had seen of God so far was uh, he did all these incredible signs, but quite like earth-shaking signs in Egypt. Then he parted the Red Sea, and they'd seen a big pillar of smoke, and they'd seen all the fire, and then they get to the mountain, and they know God's on the mountain because there's thunder and lightning and earthquakes and loud booming noises. And if that was your experience of God, and God said, no, I want you to come up the mountain, would you be eager to get up that mountain? Probably not. But they have to, so they, they spend the night preparing, uh, they, they fast, and they read out the entire law, and they, they throw water on everybody, and blood on everybody, and they think, okay, now we're going to go up the mountain, we expect to die. And they go up the mountain, and they said they met with God, and they sat and they ate with God. And they reported, they came back down, they said, we sat and we ate with God, and he didn't put his hand on us, which meant they were shocked that they weren't killed. They had this intimate meal with God. And, and what you start to get if you read this whole story is that God is, has always been longing for his people to draw near to him, to be in intimate fellowship, relationship, unity, union with him. And that happens over a meal. He wants us to eat with him. This is God's plan. But sin from that first meal in the garden, sin has caused a problem for us. It's caused a brokenness in our relationship with God, first and foremost, but also in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with our own body, in our relationships with creation. It's caused a problem because we ate wrong. Humanity ate wrong. They ate in disobedience. They didn't eat in intimacy. They didn't eat in agreement with what God wanted. They ate in their own selfishness. They ate in their own desires that were apart from what God desired. And we still do that. And I'm not talking about just going to McDonald's, though I do suggest that is also disobedience but, and unhealthy in every possible way. Uh, so don't do it. But we eat, we eat and we live in disobedience from what God wants for us. And, and it's not just that God's angry at us. God, God is upset because God wants us to come near. It's not that God is just longing for an opportunity to smite us. God is longing for us to receive his invitation to come up the mountain and to sit and eat with him. He wants this for us. This is, this is God's desire for us. But this brokenness is a problem. And it leads us to the second meal that I left out, and it's the meal we're going to look at today in some detail. It's Luke 22. It'll be on the screen, I believe. But Luke 22, and I might have a different translation, but it's okay. Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the, the Passover. Now, that's a weird thing. You know, it sounds a bit like a spy movie, you know. Well, where are we going to do it? We'll go into Jerusalem, find the man with the yellow carnation and a, and a jar of water on his head, and he'll take you to the room. And, you know, why is he doing all this? Well, just before we read that Judas had agreed to betray Jesus. 
And Jesus wants to have this last meal, this last supper with his disciples, and he has some things to impart. And so he's actually hiding the location of the meal from Judas, which is really interesting. And he's hiding the location of the meal from the Jewish authorities who are intending on killing him. So they go in to prepare the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. And it's fascinating. Jesus was hiding the location before the meal. He was hiding the location from Judas, but Judas was still invited to the meal. That's amazing. And in another one of the the Gospels, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he washes Judas' feet at the meal, his betrayer, the person who was intending on having him killed. That is astounding. Judas is described, actually at this moment, as being possessed by Satan. And he's invited to the meal. This is someone who had been journeying with Jesus for three years, who had listened to his teaching, had eaten at his table, would eat the Last Supper with Jesus, and yet he was possessed by an unclean spirit, by a demonic power bent upon the destruction of Jesus. And this is the underlying spiritual context of the entire Gospel of Luke. In particular, it is for the crucifixion narrative that is a spiritual conflict between Satan and God. And the Son of God reaches Jerusalem, and it is Palm Sunday, which they didn't call it that yet. We call it that later. But it's Palm Sunday, and everyone's going, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're, they're praising him. They're saying, oh, Hosanna, God is saving us. God is saving us. Glory be to God. He is saving us. Hosanna in the highest. And, and the Son of God reaches Jerusalem, and he's announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And so Satan sets about working to have him killed. And Judas and the religious authorities have chosen the side of the accuser, chosen the side of the enemy of God. And a point for us to consider here today is that being religious and appearing pure, even hanging out with Jesus, listening to his teaching, was no guarantee of being on God's side. This is every bit as true today as it was in Jesus' day. Just looking the part, playing the part, is not sufficient. Because Jesus isn't calling us to a fake intimacy. He's not calling us to a performance. He's calling us to a real, intimate meal with him. So it's against this background that Jesus instructs his disciples to make these preparations for the Passover feast. The meal they were going to share was a combination of the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. At this time in Jewish history, those two things were being combined. And and the meal was a ritual. It was a remembrance 
of what God had done for Israel at the Exodus. Think, think Thanksgiving, but far more significant, far more important. Meals that we have that are, are meant to remember things that have happened in the past. Far more significant than something like Thanksgiving. But it was also a narrative. Jesus was changing this. He was transforming this meal into something new because he was talking about what he was about to undergo. That's a really interesting thing. He said, let, looks back in the past. This is what has happened. This is the liberation that you as a nation, you as a people, have experienced from God. Now we're having this together, and I'm pointing towards myself and towards what's about to happen, that there is a new liberation that's about to happen. At Exodus, the Jewish families, and many of you may know this, but the Jewish families had to kill a lamb, and its blood would be painted on the doorposts, and this would save them from the angel of death that came into e Egypt. And the, the symbolism here, connecting this lamb's blood to the blood that was about to be spilled by Jesus for the salvation of his people, is very, very obvious. I mean, it couldn't be more on the nose. Luke is hammering something home here. I want you to get this. This is the Lamb of God. His blood is being shed, and it will save you from death. And Jesus confirms this. He takes the elements of the meal, and he uses them to refer to his upcoming sacrifice in a way that Christians for all time would remember. And really, this is the central ritual act of Christianity. If you were to get rid of just about everything else, what's left is a meal a very particular kind of meal that we remember what Jesus has done for us. And we remember, as Jesus performed this meal, that Judas was present. Very interesting. The broken bread symbolizes Jesus' broken body. The first cup of wine symbolized their table fellowship, and the second symbolized the spilled blood of Jesus, which was the token of the new covenant that God was making with his people with all people. So they're remembering a deliverance, and they're looking forward to the deliverance that is to come. A new covenant was about to be forged between Jesus and all who believed in him. And this partaking of the bread and wine, I know it can become just a ritual, just a thing that we do. I understand that can, it, it can become really cold, and, and we don't really think all that much about it, just something that we do. But what Jesus is inviting his disciples into, and what he's actually inviting us into, is quite scandalous. I don't know if you know the passage where, where um, Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. You know that passage? And the disciples go, like, a lot of people go, whoa, this is too hard a saying. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And they leave. And Jesus looks at his disciples like, are you going to go too? They go, well, we got nothing else. <laughs> we left everything for you. I guess we'll do it. But that's weird. Like, that's weird for us. If I said today, look, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'd be like, nope. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. You know, that's weird. You know, we just go, oh, yeah, well, Jesus said it, so it's okay. Like, it, it is. It's good. It's better than okay. It's, it's the, the best thing ever. But it's weird. And it was way weirder, actually, for them because, like, they had clean and unclean rules about what you're allowed to eat. They couldn't eat a pig. They're definitely not going to eat Jesus. Like, it's, it's weird. But Jesus like, I actually want you as close as possible. I want my life to be in yours. I want you to partake of my life. I want you to partake in myself. This is from 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. 1 Corinthians 10. 16 to 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, 
Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is one bread, or the bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's a participation in the blood. It's a participation in the bread. The ritual, the meal, is not just, here's something Jesus did for us, and we're going to remember it. The, the participation in the meal is, here's something that, that Jesus did, and we're going to participate in it. We're going to join Jesus in this, which is a really much bigger understanding of what this faith in Jesus means. It's not just, here's what Jesus did, and I'm going to carry on living my life however I can, however I want, but Jesus did this for me. It's Jesus did this for me, and he's invited me to join. He's invited me to partake. This means sharing in Jesus' life. But it also means sharing in his death and his resurrection. A more intimate fellowship is hardly imaginable. And it's costly. The disciples started to learn this. It was costly to follow Jesus into Jerusalem, to follow him into this place where he was being threatened with death and would be killed would mean that they actually get tainted with the same brush. That's why when Peter says, no, I'll follow you to the death, and Jesus goes, well, you, you actually won't. Not yet, anyways. You're going to deny me because this is really, really hard. Following Jesus into his death is against everything we're trying to do for self-preservation, but Jesus says, I'm inviting you into fellowship with me because you have to die with me if you want to live with me. It's the only way. You can't have new life and still trying to be holding on to your old life. Eat this and be one with me. Join with me. And that's why it says in 2 Peter 1, 3-4 that we, we, we have these divine promises so that we might partake in the divine nature. We might join Jesus in the divine nature. We don't have time to unpack all that, but that should just keep you up for a few weeks. This notion that we will partake in the divine nature, what does that mean? Reflect and pray on that for a while. But just think, like, what does it mean to eat bread? What happens to that bread? It becomes part of you, doesn't it? When you drink wine or juice, whatever you do, doesn't that just become part of you? Like, at a certain point, if somebody if were to cut you open, they wouldn't be able to go, well, here's you and here's the bread. It's just part of you. You partake in it. You participate in this bread, and this bread is in you. We can actually experience something of this here and now. Something of this beauty here and now. We can have fellowship with God and his son Jesus Christ and with one another in a heavenly way. 1 John 1 to 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. There's lots of examples of this that I could give you. Lots of examples in, in my own life that I could give you. But I'll give you just a couple examples now. At Jacob's Well, uh, we have a weekly meal. And uh, there's a lot of meals, a lot of food in the downtown east side, and a lot of groups come in, and I've seen this happen, where a van will pull up, and the door will open, and they'll just have a ton of bread and a ton of just usually fried food or things that aren't so good, and then a lineup starts, and sometimes people call it uh, pigeoning, like, you know, how pigeons all come together and get the food and they fight each other. Sometimes people call that, but a lineup starts, and they just get their food, and off they go, and people go, ah, bless you, as they go. We get, we get a lot of that. That's what we try and not do. Um, at Jacob's Well. At Jacob's Well, we have this meal, and there's sometimes uh, 50 to 70 people will come and sit down, and everybody in the room knows everybody else's name. 
and it, just different people in the room take turns serving or going and washing the stuff afterwards, and, and it's just a place you actually see it. New people come in, they look around, and they don't quite understand it because this isn't a typical downtown east side meal. It's a meal where people might wait for 30 minutes before the food arrives, and they'll stick around afterwards for like an hour and a half. We had a karaoke night once after our meal, and tons of people stuck around because they are not exactly there for the food. We do have another couple, uh, a family, who we were doing it in the park one, one day, and they came by, they said, oh, is, there, is this food for anybody? And we said, yes, come and join us. And they joined us, and, they, and a year later, they're still with us. And they ha- because of their culture and their faith, they have certain things they're not allowed to eat. But even when those things are on the menu, they go, it's okay, it doesn't matter. We just like being here for the fellowship. It's not about the food. We could eat at home. We just like being here with one another. And it's a type of meal that I haven't had the opportunity to see in lots of places. It's beautiful. And you can't tell. I love it when people come in and they, they, they talk to someone who's maybe been homeless for six years, and they go, are you in charge here? Because they can't tell who's in charge because we're not trying to say, well, these, these are the bosses and these are the people we're feeding. It's meant to be mutual. We sit around the table and we eat together. Or I think of my daughter's birthday. It's actually my daughter's birthday tomorrow. But several years ago, around this time, we were having a big party. And we always did these theme parties for our kids because they, they love them. And this one year, my daughter, she had got to, I think, 13 or 14 and she wanted an a Oscars-themed party, like an Academy Awards-themed party. Will Smith wasn't there, so it was fine. Um, um, that's a cheap joke. But um, she wanted an Oscars-themed party. And so we're in the downtown east side, and we're like right beside basically a, a functioning brothel, and on the other side is a chicken factory, and, um, which should not be there. Either, neither of them should really be there, but definitely the chicken factory shouldn't be there. And so we set up like a red carpet and these posts along, and we had all a bunch of people in the community with cameras come and take pictures, and she and her friends dressed up in these beautiful, uh, well, you know, whatever they had for it to be beautiful, and they would walk down, and we had a bunch of people come up and say, oh, can you give us your autograph and stuff, and they, they did all this thing, and then we went upstairs and had a, a big meal, and one of the girls from uh, next door, who we knew, uh, she came over and she said, what's going on? It's like really exciting, and, she, and we said, oh, it's my daughter's birthday party, and she said, um, can I go? Can I get her a gift? Can I go give her a gift? And then we said, Yeah, of course, of course, you can come on up if you want. And she said, No, no, I've I've got work to do. You know, which meant she was going to go and and sell herself on the street. She said, I've got work to do, but I want to go and give her a gift. So she went, and we kind of cleaned everything up, went upstairs, and we heard a knock on the door, and came over, and she had this little gift, and she said, uh, She said, Actually, I've I've arranged things. Can I come up? And it would have been costly for her to arrange that. She said, Can I come up? I said, Yeah, you can come on up. And she came up the stairs. And she, there was cake, and she just grabbed the biggest piece of cake and sat right in the middle and was just, just destroying this cake, like just having the greatest time. And it was like kids and grandparents and community members just, and, and her just sitting there eating cake together. And then she brought out her gift and gave her gift to my daughter. And, and it was two people from like the opposite spectrums of life, you know, young and, and older and, and in, in this kind of innocence and, and having had innocence broken, but it was a sharing. It, there was a mutuality of life together. And I just couldn't help thinking, oh, that's what this is meant to look like. That's what our meals should look like. That's what actually hospitality is. And I just thought, this is Jesus inviting not just Judas, who was his obvious enemy, but all these disciples who were going to leave him, who were going to abandon him in the moment. He said, I earnestly desire to eat with you. And that's us, isn't it? Isn't that us? Isn't it us that God is always saying, come eat with me? And we're like, eh, I don't know. 
And, and then, you know, when we start to go, well, okay, maybe I'd like to eat with you, but is it okay if I come up? Like, I don't know. I'm not really, you know, it's that lady at the front door going, is it all right if I come into your house and come and eat with, with your, be- you know, your family and the, the kids? And, and I said, yeah, it's okay. Please, we earnestly desire for you to come up and eat with us. And God earnestly desires to come and eat with us. And so my challenge to you, church, and to myself is for us to eat together well to eat together in the Spirit, to join Jesus in this invitation to eat with Him, eating together in the light of God's goodness and salvation, which now leads us to this third meal, the final meal that I forgot about or didn't mention. It's a different kind of Last Supper, and it's in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, 6-9, to nine, says... Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, You must not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then in Revelation 22, 1 to 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Remember the last time we noticed the tree of life at the very beginning of Scripture in the garden where the meal is bad? It leads to this brokenness. And now at the end of all things, we see the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Jesus has done this. God desired it. In this great meal, Jesus is overturning the curse of the fall and making it possible for us to come together and be healed and be blessed and not cursed. And this is our opportunity to partake of this, to partake.